All right, anybody, anybody not have a handout? The handouts are literally right up here on the stage. Come and grab one if you want one, or ask uh, J.D. Noble, and he'll hook you up. All right, you guys ready? This is the week. We, 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 have, we have five weeks of like regular class time. We take two weeks break, one for a church chat in preparation for a congregational business meeting, and then we actually have a congregational business meeting. Again, it's really helpful that we can use this growth hour for those kind of meetings, right? So the kids can still be doing what they're going to be doing, and then we can cover our adult education classes or business meetings and fit all those things on Sunday morning. But technically, the class is going to go five weeks. This is week three. Then we're going to take those two weeks off to do church business stuff. Then we're going to have a Q&A, right? Q&A time will be the sixth week. And I, I don't have the dates memorized, but, but we'll, obviously it's not next week. But that means that you can, in that moment, be asking questions. Now, I know Revelation is one of those books where it's sometimes even hard to know what questions to ask. Right? You just kind of want to throw your hands up and say, I'm just trying to figure this thing out. How am I supposed to have a question on that? But, but think about it. And the other thing I'd want to even say is just shoot it to me in an email. It doesn't have to be a question you raised that day. Like, I haven't received any yet, but you can send me an email, and you may not even know exactly what question you want to ask, but you may be kind of talking around a topic, then I can kind of hone in with you or for you exactly what you're kind of trying to address, and then I can address it on that sixth week. So please don't be afraid to do that. The church is supposed to be a place where the family of God gather and discuss all these things. And we need to learn all these things. I, I sat in on an ordination council on Thursday. And these ordination councils in the EFCA are important. And it's interesting. Like, you don't want those things to be a rubber stamp. You don't just want to say, do you love Jesus? Good, brother. You're good. And you also don't want it to be something where it's like this rigorous thing, like something I went through in my PhD viva. You don't want that either. Right? You're, you're, you're somebody fit for ministry who's orthodox and holds to core doctrine. They don't have to be an expert in every particular topic. So we spend, I think it was about five and a half hours, pastors from all over northern Illinois, dealing with tough theological issues for this young pastor at Park Hills Evangelical Free Church. And interesting, even when I showed up, he came up to me and he goes, hey, I'm glad you're here. I was kind of hoping you'd be sick today. But deep down, I am glad you're here. And I said, brother, I'm not here to make sure you are, have a PhD in biblical theology, but, but I am here to make sure that you're encouraged and you're affirmed as a pastor, as one of your brothers in this community. And it was, I mean, we talked, we talked about it all, and it wasn't, it wasn't just me asking the question, right? There was probably 10 other people asking questions. So imagine every possible question sitting there just with your open Bible. He'd written a 42-page ordination paper. He'd already been grilled by the moderator over this, and so he'd already gone through a licensing project. He'd already had certain committee. This was the ordination council, and then we're just sitting there, and we're able to ask on any topic, explain the deity of Christ, explain propitiation, etc. And the one thing I noticed, and I've seen this several times in our tradition. Right, so this is, this is our tradition here. These are my people. I'm not saying that as if it's their, their issue. I'm saying this is, this is our issue. We can have a ton of good Bible data in the little details, but we just do not see the big picture. And I would say the same thing about my training. When I graduated from 
Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and even now, right, I'm, I'm teaching a class there this summer. I'm teaching a class there this fall. Like, I say this to students all the time. My fear about this school is you will come out with a whole ton of biblical knowledge about a ton of trees, and you don't even see the forest. And I think that's killing churches. So my, my gut is if, if your pastors, no matter, and I would say, unless you came from a completely foreign tradition, it might be a little different, but it, I don't care if you were at Berean Baptist or uh, First Baptist Church, McChesney Park, or First Free, or you name the church in, in these traditions that around the greater Rockford area that fit our heritage, Baptistic, free church, non-denominational churches, you name it. If you were raised in that denomination, my gut is over the last 75 years, which would cover about everybody, is that you have a ton of Bible knowledge and you don't have a system that you can see how it all fits together. And I actually think that hurts the church. And that's exactly what I said to this young man. I said to him, you have a ton of Bible knowledge, but you're actually not able to see the coherent system. And so I pushed him on that. I mean, he was ordained and passed, and it was a great thing, and we celebrated. But that's never hit him to grow. And if he doesn't grow into that, if he doesn't develop in that, then his ministry will be hindered. Now, when you come to Revelation, boom, you bump into that big time. Because we just don't have a system for this. We just have a ton of little Bible data, a, a, a lot of little trees that we're familiar with, and we love the bark or the leaves on those particular trees, but we just do not see the forest. So I'm talking forest stuff today. So if what I'm talking about, you're like, what? I've never even heard that category. It's because nobody ever discipled you to see it. And to be fair, I got an undergrad degree in biblical and theological studies. I did a master of divinity and a master of theology in New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And it wasn't until I was with my PhD supervisor in the UK. Remember the guy that said, do you even know how to read? It wasn't until it was him where he began like a, like a Jedi Knight with his Padawan, right? Until he began to probe, and he's like, have you read anything in theology? Like, what have you been reading? And he literally, this was amazing to me, I am not making this up. Sitting in his chair in this little, whatever, 800-year-old study in St. Andrews, he reached behind his head and grabbed it, but didn't look for it, grabbed it pulled it up and handed me a book by a guy named Augustine. And, this, and, and he says, you ever read this? And th- th- this, was, this was 27-year-old stupid me. Uh, professor, I- I- I'm a New Testament guy. That's theology. And he just kind of tipped his head to the side like that with this weird-looking grin. Like, I realized that was stupid. <laughs> He's like, is it not? I, I understand you're a person of the word, but... Question, is the author God? You know what theology means? Study of God? Read this book. And I finished that book. I brought it back because in the midst of other schoolwork and stuff, maybe it took me a couple weeks, I bring the book back. Bloop, read this book. I mean, I was never assigned the forest kind of books when I was in seminary. I was assigned the nitty-gritty kind of detailed kind of things, but nobody ever taught me the forest. And it wasn't until I got pressured on that that I saw the forest. And, and, and here's why that's dangerous, is because if you don't see the forest, then you're misreading how to apply all those nitty-gritty details of God's Word to the world. It's, it's just easy for another system 
to actually dominate. Another system overtakes you, and you don't even see its systemic form because you've never been taught to see the big picture. You just got to tell, oh, I love this verse, I love that verse. Okay, what's the, what, what's, what's the grid you're using to put it all together? If you don't know what that grid, if that grid isn't the Bible's grid, then you're in, you're in trouble. So I'm not saying that's on your shoulders. In fact, I would say, if anything motivated me to go from the academy to come minister in local churches, it was to help with their grids. In fact, I'm leaving. I leave. I have a 7 a.m. flight Friday morning this week, flying to Arizona, and I'm meeting on Friday afternoon with elders and staff, and guess what I'm teaching on? In, uh, it's going to be a little warmer than here. I wish I would have gone in February or January. I'm talking on big picture grid stuff to staff and elders for three hours, have dinner with a pastor and his family Friday night, Saturday morning, wake up to a church of about 1,500 people. I'm talking big picture stuff all Saturday morning, quick lunch. I fly home. I'll see you next Sunday. But I'm supposed to be doing those kind of things because I don't think this pastor, these elders, they literally, as I've been talking to them and preparing for this meeting, they got all these little trees, but they don't see the forest. So I'm hoping, and this is a plug for Growth Hour stuff, what we're going to try to offer in Growth Hour is to catechize the people of God, to not just see the individual trees, but see the big forest. And it's going to be stuff like, what? Why would I need to take a class on the Old Testament? I've, been a, I've read it several times. I've, I, trust me. Make sure you see the forest. And it's not just for you. It's for what you pass on to your children and your grandchildren and the next generation that the truth of God's word and the gospel gets rightly handed down. Because you definitely will see when you read the New Testament that the Apostle Paul and the rest of the apostles are very concerned that they see the big picture. They're not just wrestling with the individual bark and leaves. They're looking at the whole forest. So I'm going to talk about some big picture stuff. And to be honest with you, if, if you were going to get offended in a Revelation class, today's the day. Because I'm going to promote a particular reading that is not dispensational. Have you never heard what dispensationalism is? That's, that's, that's a forest term. But dispensationalism is the left-behind position, right? And there are dear brothers and sisters in Christ who hold this position and who will be in heaven with you and me. So remember, this is a third-rank issue. This is not a gospel issue. This isn't even a formation of the church issue. This is a third-rank issue. I think it makes a difference, but we will disagree about this. The, the pastor that was ordained at Park Hills EV Free Church this past Thursday, he and I disagree on this particular issue. I didn't even push him on that because it's a biblical position. I want him to be consistent, but I didn't push him on this kind of a thing. That's a biblical position, so hear that. But I will talk about the two positions that are in our camp and offer you one that I think is more accurate to the book of Revelation. I'll show you why. I'll also, at the end of our class today, after giving you the three kind of positions on Revelation, we're going to go through a passage in Revelation 21 about the temple, and I'm going to show you how to read it through one way versus the other. And by the way, next week, the only thing we're going to talk about is the mark of the beast and 666. That's it. So I'm going to take you to Revelation 13. And I'm going to walk you for the entire 45 minutes through Revelation 13. Again, using the categories that I'm going to introduce to you today. Okay? So, I mean, those, I just want to be able to spend time in the text. Because we've talked about, we, we did the Aaron Rodgers relax week one. Right? We gave some kind of categories 
of the genre, the form of revelation, week two. This week and next week, we're talking about how do I read the book? Like, I understand it's, a, it's an apocalypse. It's not a letter. It's not a narrative. It's an apocalypse. So how do I read that? This is giving you the lenses to read that in a short little time in a text. And then next week, we're just going to spend time in one text. And it's a biggie, right? So all of you pro or con vaccinators who think that the vaccination might be the mark of the beast, we'll talk about that next week. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to find a sense of grounding on the gospel even when we wrestle with things over which brothers and sisters can disagree. And all of us will have at some, in some way a, a council when we graduate to heaven where we realize that our theology was imbalanced or just missing things. Yet all of us at the same time can know full well that we are sons and daughters of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Help us today to understand this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three approaches to Revelation. You got the notes. If you don't, it's, it's right there. And I even give you a lot of things. I share a lot of things so you can see them. Uh, a, B, and C. Couple, notice the bold words. They all start with a P. I like alliteration. The predictive approach. The preterist approach. If you've never heard about it, don't worry about it. I think it's completely wrong. And the pastoral prophetic approach. It's really A and C that's the debate in our tradition. Now, look at the key word. I gave you a couple key words if you want to kind of get a, a, a gist for how they work. The predictive approach reads Revelation like it's a code that needs to be translated, right? Welcome to Left Behind series. Total left behind. And it's completely interpreting as a future event. The Left Behind series was not writing something as if it was helping you this weekend, the Left Behind series is telling you what is to come, hence future. The preterist approach, again, key words, fulfilled. They think it's already happened. So think about that for a second, right? Like they would look at the Left Behind and like, dude, you've, Revelation left you behind. This already happened. They read Revelation as if it happened in the first century. They would ultimately interpret like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the 60s in the first century and the slaughtering of the apostles, etc. They would say that all of that, those events, are, are what Revelation is talking about. And of course, for them, it's a past. Finally, the pastoral prophetic approach, this is the one I hold to. I could be, hear me say this, I could be wrong. I totally could be. And, and let, me, let me put it in this context. Uh, you got two dear brothers, John Piper, John MacArthur. They both hold the different positions. John MacArthur, he's, he reads it as predictive, future. John Piper, pastoral prophetic, present. You think either of those have a question about whether they're believers in Jesus Christ? You think either of those, like they're kind of wondering whether they're going to sit alongside you know, the, the family of God around the slain lamb on the throne? Of course, but they disagree. And they absolutely work together in ministry. So you've got, you've got, you've got others. You've got, let's say, uh, maybe names you'll know, right? and, and, you, and you'll find, for good or for bad, 
with the, with the future reading that it's strongly American and it's much more recent and it's fading fast. We can talk more about that. Maybe that's part of the Q&A. But that's just, it's, it's, it's arguably, it's a newer position. You didn't have many who held this up until about the 1860s. So like you've got Chuck Swindoll, guess where he would be? Predictive. Tim Keller, pastoral prophetic. You've got David Jeremiah, guess where he would be? Predictive. How about D.A. Carson, the president of the Gospel Coalition? Pastoral prophetic. And for, for good or for bad, one of my teachers. So do you see what I'm saying? Like these are, these are all brothers. They all are. But they've got very different approaches to these kind of things. Let, let's talk about them. First, the predictive approach. This is the most familiar approach to Revelation that you will know. That's, my, that's me guessing. This is, the, this is the one I was raised in. And I remember having conversation with my mom at a, she, I don't think she'll be mad at me saying this. She's not here. Uh, we were having lunch at uh, one of those tomato places right by Schaum, in Schaumburg, right by Woodfield Mall, whatever it's called. And I was talking, we were talking about eschatology, and literally over her soup, she starts crying, my son's getting so liberal. I'm not liberal. This is a historic position in the church, even if I don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. But for my mom, she was about to come across the table and spank me like she did when I was four. You don't mess around with God's word, boy. I don't care how big you are or how much school you've had. Get over here. Give me that breadstick. I'm going to beat you with it. Like, that's my mom, and I'm thankful for that. That impulse is good. She'd never heard anything else, and I hadn't either. The first time I heard anything different, it was from the preaching of John Crocker. And I don't think he totally showed all his cards because he knows how heated it can be. But I picked up on something. And I was a senior in high school, and I at one point set up a meeting with him, and I sat down and I said, I'm not sure I understand exactly what you're talking about, but I, I forget the question I asked, but I said, I'm, what do you mean by this? And he kind of got that little smirk, and he said, go to your first year of Bible college and come back, we'll talk a little bit more. And after every year of college, I'd go back, and we'd have one of these meetings where he's, I'm asking him questions. I'm asking him questions because I just didn't have the categories. This approach dominates the United States. It dominates good Bible-preaching churches. It is primarily in the United States. I remember I was sitting in a PhD seminar with people that had studied all over the UK and the US, and, and we're talking, and somebody used the word dispensationalism. And every evangelical in the room, like me, there was an evangelical from Fuller Seminary. There were two of us from Trinity. There was a guy from Gorin-Conwell. There was a guy from Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, and there was a guy from Dallas Theological Seminary. We were, there were several evangelicals in this PhD seminar of about 20 people. And I just saw all these brilliant minds with Yale, Harvard, Cambridge, St. Andrews, whatever, sitting in that room. And, and, and an evangelical, the guy from Fuller, says dispensationalism. And I just saw them, well, what? What are you talking about? They're like, you know the Left Behind series? What's that? And all the evangelicals kind of look at each other like, you guys never heard of this? Like this stuff dominates TV preachers and is, 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 is full in all of our churches. That's what we were all raised on. Hard to find a church unless you were 
probably pretty confessional Presbyterian or something like that. If you were in any evangelical-ish church, that's what you heard in this country. And then my supervisor, the guy that reached back and handed me Augustine without looking, goes, I think it's some slightly strange view of the end times. Okay. And then they just moved on. And I'm like, that, I was baptized in that kind of stuff. That's all I ever knew. That's, that's why I say, my guess is, unless you just immigrated here from Germany and you were in a conservative German church, this is probably what you were raised in. It has a focus on the end times, hence eschatology, which they interpret as the end of the world. Now again, the, arguably the New Testament, the end times started when Jesus came. That's the beginning of the new creation. That's why, by the way, we worship Today and not yesterday. Like the very fact that we're worshiping today and not yesterday is because we believed with the New Testament that the end was already beginning. That's how you can see even 2,000 years ago, the apostles say, in these last days. That meaning the Lord could come at any moment. Before he came, we knew he needed, to, like he needed to come twice. He's already come one time. When's he coming again? That might not be for two more thousand years, but it, he could have come yesterday. So when the New Testament, the Bible speaks about the end times, they're speaking about right now. But in this system, end times, is probably the last seven years of human history during what's called the tribulation and then the millennium. Bullet point three, this is the approach of dispensationalism. That word dispensationalism is a fancy, I mean, it's an 1800s word that still gets used. It really is an old English word for administration. So call it administrationism. The argument is, is that God dealt in the Bible with people in different ways. And here's the big breakdown. Again, this is good Q&A stuff, okay, for last class. He deals with Israel different than he deals with the church. That's the biggest distinction. He deals with Israel in dispensationalism differently than he deals with the church. Hence, there is a huge emphasis on guess what nation. Sweden? Nope. Iran? Nope. Israel. Huge focus on Israel. Because in their reading of the Bible, when God, think of Genesis 1 to 11 as the Bible's prologue. 1 to 11 gets you up all the way through Babel, right? All the way through the Noah stuff. And the world is just kaput. All of a sudden, Genesis 12, God picks one man and says, I'm starting something new with you. And he uses language that we translate as nation, which really probably is better to mean a people. And he's going to, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And that Abraham, and that what starts that Abrahamic covenant, blossoms into what we now know as Israel in the, in the Old Testament. In the dispensational system, that is something distinct from what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Those promises are distinct from what he's doing with Jesus Christ. They're related but distinct. So that God has a special plan and a role for Israel in dispensationalism. Which is why eschatology comes, becomes such a big deal. I, this is where it's hard to see the forest with all these trees. But here's why. He starts something with Abraham and then... Boom, Jesus comes, and Jesus seems to answer all the questions. So then the dispensationalist says, okay, God, what's going to happen 
with what you promised to Israel. Because if, if we're reading it right, you promised land. Is that, ever that come up, by the way, land with Israel? Ever come a big deal? You promised land. You promised a priestly role. You promised all these kind of things. If you don't know your prophets well, it might be even harder to hear this, but Zechariah 14, all of those kind of texts get read through that lens. So then their assumption is, well, what God is doing with Jesus, he also is doing something distinct with Israel, and clearly Jesus didn't fulfill all that. Like, it's not like immediately when Jesus came, all, you had Israel in the land, right? It's not like that was all resolved. It's not like when Jesus came, it was all about Israel. In fact, when Jesus came, it all of a sudden became about everybody, not just Israel's, but even the Gentiles. Like, the whole world was included. So the only way we can resolve this, here is the thinking. You can think primarily a guy named John Nelson Darby in the 1850s and 60s who said, well, the only way we can resolve this is to read and see that at the end of history, God's going to work all that out. So you've got the inner circle of you've got in the middle of the Bible, you've got the Jesus story, and then from Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation You've got, he's going to do something with Israel. So here's how it works. Again, here's the forest. God hasn't yet fulfilled his promises to Israel. So at some point, he's got to get the church out of here so he can deal with Israel. Because Israel is clearly not following Jesus like the church is. So what's he going to do? He's going to suck the church out. Guess what that's called? That's called the rapture. There it is. He's got to do this. If he doesn't do this, how is he going to deal with Israel when you've got all the other people around? Like, it's kind of like you got to talk to your one kid who's trouble, but you got a couple other kids. You're like, get out of the room right now. I got to talk to this kid. Hey, can we stay? Get out. I'm going to talk to this kid. Is he in trouble? Yes, get out. Welcome to the rapture. Because he made these promises, and the church did not, in their reading, didn't fulfill the promises. Like, that's the debate. Did the church fulfill the promises? Did Jesus fulfill the promises? My argument would be, absolutely he did. Their argument would be, absolutely, he did not. Now, hear that. John Piper, we're sitting over here. That would be really cool. And John MacArthur sitting over there. Again, really awesome. Piper would say, Johnny. Well, he, you'd be Johnny. You're just John. John, did Jesus fulfill everything you would ever want to do with the first Adam? And John Piper would say, and probably as only he can say it, absolutely, yes. Okay, Johnny Mac, talk to me. Don't fight with Johnny Piper yet. Did Jesus fulfill everything that the first Adam and ultimately what, you, what God coming with Abraham was supposed to do? He would say, absolutely not. So who's right? Which one's right? Now at this point you're thinking, what? And these guys, they preach together at conferences. Amen, they do. They're personal friends. They sure are. But this guy literally is not waiting for a rapture of the church, and that guy is. That's the forest. That's, that's putting the whole Bible together. That's hard to do. It's not just one or two Bible verses. It's like, what is the whole story trying to say? So for dispensationalism, there has to be a whole lot of action at the end of the story. Why? Because what was promised to Israel at the beginning of the story didn't happen. So now we got to get the church out of here. There's got to, what's the tribulation for? The tribulation is, is, remember me, I pulled a couple kids out so I could talk to the one troublesome kid. The tribulation is that conversation with that troublesome kid. 
where literally God reveals his holiness, and in their version of the story, numerous Jews and Israelites confess their sins, commit themselves to Jesus Christ. Christ then comes down, reigns for a thousand years, and after a thousand years of reigning with Israel at the center of the activity, building a third temple, etc., etc., then the eternal state. Now, I go over here and I say, Piper, talk to me. What, what do you think about that? He's like, I don't believe that at all. I would say but when Jesus came, he came and fulfilled all the covenants. 2 Corinthians 1.20, look it up. All the promises are yes in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20. So as Paul, Paul likes to say, hey, if you have any questions about if Jesus fulfilled it all, I'm going to just answer the question right now. Yes, he did. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, you know, MacArthur would say, wait, wait, well, what about the promise of land? Pipe would say, 2 Corinthians 1. Yes, he did. Because he's the creator of the universe. When he, the promise of land was never just one. The Garden of Eden always symbolized all of creation. Well, what about this unique role of the people, etc.? Yes, he did. Like God had always, Jesus fulfilled that role. I mean, when you think about for, for what, what someone who's, like Piper would say, he's like, I mean, it's kind of interesting that Jesus, lived, the fancy word is recapitulated the life of Israel. He want, Israel's in the wilderness for 40, day, 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus had 12. Jesus is the true Israel. He fulfilled the mission of Israel. In fact, even Isaiah, you see this. If you were to carefully read, and Isaiah is a hard book, but if you were to start in Isaiah 40 through, up through 53, anybody ever heard of Isaiah 53? But if you start in Isaiah 40, the biblical story talks about all these servants, and clearly it's talking about the nation, the people of Israel. But slowly and surely, that plural servants shrinks, 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 shrinks. And ultimately, by the time you're getting near Isaiah 50, it's not servants plural, it's a singular servant. And you're like, who's the singular servant? And then all of a sudden, what's this servant do? Isaiah 52 and ultimately 53, this servant dies and takes upon himself the sin of the world. So Johnny, John Piper would say to Johnny Mac, hey man, I, I appreciate your careful reading of the Bible. I do, but help me understand how you would understand Isaiah 40 to 53 because it sure looks like it goes from servants plural to servant singular and Jesus fulfills it all. He is the true Israel. He's the second Adam. You are either a child of the first Adam or you're a child of the second. You don't need to speak about ethnicity anymore. It's no longer about where you a first Adam Jew or a first Adam Gentile. I'm neither of those. I'm a child of the second Adam. And in the child of the second Adam, there is no classification. Educated or barbarian. Again, Galatians 3. Male or female. Jew or Gentile. We are all one unit. The people promised in Genesis 12 are made manifest in the people of God, the church, the children of the second Adam. Now, how many of you hear that and say, that is still darn confusing? That's the church word. Yeah. It's hard. That's complex. But you at least get a, a bit of a feel for this truth, 
It is hard. It is hard to understand different readings of Revelation if you don't understand the pressure for the rest of the story. The reason Revelation becomes a debated reading is because for John MacArthur and the dispensationalists, Revelation has to hold the weight of it sure looks like God did what he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. That didn't happen. And so Revelation, I think, is where we see how it works out. Where John Piper is over here is like, dude, Johnny Mac, love your ministry, 50 years, that rocks. But let me explain. Jesus fulfilled Genesis 12. Revelation is not supposed to be read that way. So look at the notes with you. Next, next bullet point down. This approach decodes revelation. This is under A, decodes revelation. There's that keyword, decodes, by connecting symbols and images with later figures and events. I have books in my office with a picture. There's one book. This is written by a Moody professor. By the way, different schools have different theological systems. So if you go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, in my day, half the faculty was John Piper, half the faculty was John MacArthur. Today, it's probably 95% John Piper. But you can't teach at Dallas Theological Seminary unless you completely agree with John MacArthur. You can't teach. I've been asked three times by Moody Bible Institute to come teach classes there while I've been here. And every time I say to the chair of the New Testament, you understand I'm not pre-trib. Oh, I forgot about that. So because I would agree with Piper, or even though I'd be teaching like a class, on they'd say, would you come teach a class on the Gospel of John? We're literally using your commentary in, the, in our class. Will you come teach class? I said, I'd love to, but I am not pre-trib. Oh, that's right. You can't teach here. So I agree with everything else. They've even forgotten. They've called me three times. And then I'm reminding the department chair I'm not allowed to teach there. That same would be for Dallas Seminary. I studied at Dallas for two years. It was at Dallas where I was trained in this approach. And the whole time I'm like, what? I'm just not sure that's lining up with the New Testament. But I never said it to a prof because I'm like, I'm like a 22-year-old punk. I wanted to say it to them, but I just like, what? I got married to this girl, and we had connections in Chicago. Same girl I'm married to now, don't worry. And... We, had, we were connected already in Chicago, so I transferred back to Trinity, and all of a sudden, I'm sitting in classes primarily taught by people who hold the position of John Piper. I'm like, oh, that's what, that's, that's what I was thinking. I couldn't have said it like those guys, but that's what I was thinking. So the predictive approach decodes Revelation by connecting it with symbols and images. I've got books in my office. Here's one written by Moody Prof. 666, and guess whose picture is on the front? Saddam Hussein. You think he was right? You think that book's still in print anymore? I kept it. I got about five of those written by dispensationalists who are trying to predict who it is. Why? Because they're reading it like a code. And they're kind of the way you hold the Bible in one hand and you hold the newspaper in the other. And you're trying to match it up and see what God is doing. That's the decoding approach. Made famous by Hal Lindsey, late great planet Earth. Ever heard of that book? Predictive approach. Who argued that the locusts in Revelation 9 were going to be attack, probably Apache, helicopters. It kind of looks like it might be a helicopter, right? So look at the pictures. And I gave this to you earlier on. Code, crystal ball, map, and fear. 
You're deciphering. You're predicting. You're doing one-to-one correspondence. The mark of the beast is that I'm going to wait till you hear since 1930 all the different mark of the beasts promoted by American evangelicals. I'm guessing at least three of them you have in your purse or wallet right now, just so you know. Every decade, there's a new mark of the beast for the decoding approach. And right now, it's connected to the vaccine. But you better not use a credit card today, by the way, when you go eat lunch. The preterist approach is the most unfamiliar in this room. It's actually what is done in secular circles. The, the secular world, if you went to University of Wisconsin, you took a class on Revelation, this is what they would teach you. Like, they don't believe the Bible actually is, speak, is God speaking. So whether he's speaking future or whether he's speaking present, they just don't think he's speaking. So they think it's like, it, they, they would read Revelation like you're reading something in the newspaper a long time ago. It's done. It's a focused on the past. That, fa- that word preterist is from the fancy word preterite, which just means past tense. It's a non-theological academic approach. It was written for its own time as religious literature. We can mark B off right now. We believe God wrote the Bible. Here's C, pastoral prophetic. This would be the one that this pastor holds. Again, not every pastor in this church necessarily holds this view, and they aren't required to. Not every pastor in the EFCA holds this view, and they're not required to. It's a third-rank issue. This is the most common approach throughout the history of the church. It's focused on the present, meaning rather than giving speculative insight, it's giving theological, sorry, rather than giving speculative foresight, the book is giving theological insight into the world today. That's why I like to use the word lens rather than code. Stated simply, this is the non-dispensational approach. And it reflects the majority of Christian traditions. If you, if you went to a PCA, Presbyterian church, this is the way they would teach it. If you went to some Dutch Reformed church, this is the way they would teach it. If you went to John Piper's Baptist church, this is the way they would teach it. It's across all denominations and in most of the seminaries. This approach triangulates revelation. And here, this is a fourth bullet point. You can see three things. It triangulates it by its apocalyptic form, right? So uh, the the predictive approach treats revelation like it's a future history, like it's a narrative in the future. Whereas the pastoral prophetic approach says, no, this is is meant to be read as symbols touching the heart. I'll show you that in just a minute as, as we close in Rev 21. So it triangulates it with apocalyptic form, with the prophetic intentions of comfort and challenge, and with the pastoral of calling the church to faithfulness in the face of suffering. Like, actually, that's the part, I think the predictive approach misses that one of the main approaches of Revelation, one of the main purposes, is to call out on faithfulness, to challenge you to commit to Christ in every way, and to pastorally comfort you, because it's not if you're going to suffer, it's how. But again, the, the danger of the predictive approach to me is actually we don't think we're supposed to suffer. You got the whole New Testament talking about suffering, 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 suffering. And then the predictive approach is literally having us put our hope in the fact that, well, when it gets bad, we get to get sucked out of here. Like I'm one of the two kids and the other kid's in trouble, but not me, praise be to God. I get out of here before it happens. 
Again, I think the, what Revelation is actually trying to do is say, no, it's not. It. Again, that, just so you know that that works so beautifully in America. Try it in China. Try it in Mozambique. Try it in the churches in India. How about in Germany, where if you are on a roster of a church, there's a good chance that your kid will not go to college. According to one pastor in southern Germany who told me that story a couple years ago. That works great if you're not suffering. What do you do if you are? Somebody in this class sent me a, a note last week I, I thought it was helpful. It, it, this is what she said. While you were teaching yesterday regarding the rapture, I recalled having heard a number of years ago that the rapture was not taught until the mid-1800s when it was put in the Schofield Bible. Absolutely true. I also heard that a Chinese, I heard a Chinese pastor say he wished he'd never taught to his, that to his congregation but had prepared them for persecution, which they ended up enduring under the reign of Mao Tao Soon. The Chinese pastors do not teach that doctrine anymore. And this is what she adds. I believe the American church is not at all prepared for persecution. And do you know what the main book that's supposed to help us with persecution is? Revelation. Revelation 21. We only got a few minutes. I'm not even going to read the whole text. But it's there in your notes for you. And it's depicting the design of the new creation. And there's a couple things in there. One is, the city is very odd looking. Right? Verse 16. The city is, lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width or height are equal. It is a cube. Now, why? Put on your spectacles how would the, remember the eye doctor, like you check one eye, then you, the A or B? A, I hate that. I'm like, they look the same to me half the time. It's not, it's not going to now. A or B, one or two. One. Part of me is like, you choose, doctor. I have no idea. But put on those A or B. I'm going to explain this through the, briefly through the code, and then I'm going to give you the lens. So regarding the cube, John Wolverd, with whom he's, Passed on now, he was the president of Dallas Elko Seminary. I took his class, Theology of the Rapture, when I was 23 years old. And it was in his class that I was convinced of the opposite position that he held. But I never said that to him. Wolverd, in his teachings, would try to explain the cube as a functional city and how many people, how you could pack more in that way. And what role gravity might play. Like he's thinking of it as if it's translated as a real structure. Now, oh, now, okay, that's one. Now let me give you two. Lens. Remember what I said early on. Revel remember what the video last week. Revelation is literally bringing together what it already said in the Old Testament. It is the exact image of something in the temple. What in the temple, by God's design, was a cube? Bingo, holy of holies. Think about that for a second. There was one place in the world where God fully dwelled with his people. And guess where that was? Holy of holies. So when God is describing heaven, 
Remember, it's this, you can't, you can't, remember that, remember I told you that castle, I could, I, all I could see was faint images, I couldn't look through. He's describing heaven, he's like, dudes, it's a cube, wink, wink. You are with me. What is being expressed is the full, unmediated presence of God. And it's expressed in a way that it blows your imagination. It doesn't want you to say, well, like, help me out here. Like, are the streets really gold? Because that'd be cool. It wants you to think of the full, unmediated presence of God. Full symmetry, harmony, vastness, completeness, perfection. No separation, no evil, no death, only God. What's it going to be like? It's going to be like God. That's about all I can give you. The wall, by the way, 144 cubits. I think this is the same thing for 144,000, to be honest with you. The Jehovah's Witness think only 144,000, for example, will be original say There could be like secondary salvation. Uh, the code approach does things with 144,000, usually about the nation of Israel in certain times. What's 144? 12 times 12. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Like, Bible loves numbers. 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. The wall is 144 cubits. It, it grasps all God people. Again, not for preservation, but for demarcation. The people belong to God. From the beginning of the story to the end, they are his people. By the way, 12,000 stadia in verse 16, did you know 12,000 is 12,000 is 12 times 1,000, which again reinforces the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And did you know that 12,000 stadia is 7 million feet? And again, the number seven. By the way, the perimeter of that city, the size of the city that Revelation is describing about, was the size of the known Greek world in the time of Revelation. What is it saying? All the nations. What do we make of the adornment in verses 18 to 20? All these jewels and rubies and clear glass and gold. Again, let me go to my former professor, John Wolverd. They're all all John. John Piper, MacArthur, Wolverd. Wolverd is a good brother. Wolverd tries to explain how the gold or the crystal material is intended to help the light of God shine through. Like, it's how you can have walls and light, because the sun is the light, right? God's the light, so if you have clear crystal, then he doesn't have to have light fixtures in the other rooms. Like, that's literally what he argues in his commentary. Because he's thinking code. Like, you've got to translate it to a physical structure. Lens. Think Old Testament. Where do you see such articulate description of those jewels? In the breastplate of the high priest. Twice, Exodus 28 and Exodus 39, almost exactly. What is being expressed is the privilege all God's people share in their relation to God the high priest, that God's people dwell in intimate proximity with Christ, that God holds the whole world in his hands. And how about this? Like the beloved disciple in John 13, he was leaning back on the chest of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. The image for our heart and imagination is not, how are we going to get light fixtures in that second bedroom back in the corner? That's code. 
Lens is saying, in that moment, you will be with unmediated dwelling with God and perfect relating to God. Now, because we don't ask the who, what, and why question, we always ask the how. The questions we ask, well, you know, I remember asking my family this, like, will there be killer whales there? My daughter's like, puppies, please. Dad, you're a pastor. Tell me there will be puppies there. And I mean, I get those questions, right? But, you know, it, it isn't given us the how. <laughs> Do you hear what it's given you? The who. It's the who. It's saying to those Chinese Christians who are suffering persecution, look me in the eye. Look at me. Look at me. I am right here. You are so wrapped in my presence. I don't care what they do to your body. I will fully redeem you. I will restore your body. Your soul is mine. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Death? Persecution? Look at me. You will literally be dwelling with me in perfection. Do you think in that moment when persecution is coming, they're like, question, like, how big is my room? Like, how... How ridiculous and pompous and probably those who have never suffered before is that question. Like, how wide are the streets? Do we drive cars? And God's like, you're with me. You're literally dwelling with the high priest in the Holy of Holies. Just imagine that. Just give a lens now for seeing the world and be comforted in that. Do you see the difference between the predictive approach and the pastoral approach? Prophetic approach? We're out of time. I went late again. They still haven't fired me, so maybe next week somebody else will be. Doreen Burris will teach next week. I wish we could take time for questions. Listen, this is important stuff. Next week, all we're doing is Revelation 13. I encourage you to read it. Right? Bring your mark of the beast so we can... I'm just kidding. Revelation 13, Mark of the Beast. You can already imagine Mark of the Beast code is going to try to decode a specific mark. Lens is going to have a different approach, right? So we'll talk about the Mark of the Beast. I'll give you some history of the various Marks of the Beast since 1930. They are fascinating and they are many. We will talk about the Mark of the Beast and hopefully at the end of class next time we can maybe take a few of those kind of questions, all right? See you soon.